0: dense bro you
1: No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and no shows in August. What's going on with all that? BOA Audio is back, folks. Uh, I I apologize for the missing in action situation. It really just uh, kind of all came together accidentally. And as I was saying to Richard here before we went on the air, the show has really evolved into this guerrilla programming style of show. And, you know, when August comes around, as the longtime listeners of the program should know, I really just turned into a terrible paranormal radio host. I'd rather sit around uh, the fire pit and drink beers than host a radio show at the time. And uh, now that September's behind us and Labor Day's behind us, uh, September's begun, excuse me, the summer's behind us, we're back with more BOA audio, the final five episodes here of season eight. And uh, as I'm lashing myself about being so lazy uh, over the summer, we've got a guy on the program here tonight who is the opposite of that. He's amazingly prolific. He is the host of The Conspiracy Show, which you can hear Sunday nights, 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on AM740 up in Canada and on a whole bunch of stations. Just check out the uh, affiliate list at richardsurette.com. I'm kind of giving away the guest here because it is, of course, Richard Surrett. I've had the opportunity to work with him over the summer and uh, spring and really got to know him pretty well. and think he's a fantastic guy. He's a lot like me in a way. He really has a wide variety of different interests. In this whole esoteric milieu from, from Bigfoot and UFOs and conspiracy theories, of course, and, and all the sort of weird little side roads and uh, tangents you can explore. So we're going to get into all that tonight here on the program. It's a real thrill to have him on the show, and he's a baseball fan, so he's already a friend of the program, of course, because finding someone who's into the paranormal and baseball is kind of a hard A hard Venn diagram to accomplish, but we've done it a few times here on the program. So welcome to the show, Richard Surratt. Sorry for the long introduction, but folks have been waiting to hear from you for the last month, and they've been uh, really emailing me and stuff. I'm looking forward to hearing from you and me as well.
2: Great to be here. I appreciate the offer. Thank you. I'd I'd love to sit around a campfire and uh, drink a few Wobbly Pops with you likewise.
1: (laughs) Anytime, Richard. Anytime.
2: Uh, Now, as I said,
1: I've I've kind of
2: started to get to know you through uh,
1: working with you on Coast to Coast, and... uh, but tell, bring, the, uh, bring the BOA audio listeners up to speed. Tell us, who is Richard Surratt? Give us your bio, your background, so we can really dig into all this.
2: Well, let's, let's go back to the campfire for a moment. I guess uh, we're, we're like-minded in that I, there's probably nothing I'd rather do pretty well all the time than sit around a campfire. Uh, and so maybe that's why I gravitated towards radio. I, I, I look at radio as sort of the electronic bonfire Uh, And it's, you know, it's where we gather to tell stories now. So uh, I I first began uh, producing talk radio in the early 90s, and then eventually, by the late 90s, found myself behind a microphone at um, a 50,000-watt station up in Toronto, uh, CFRB, which has been on the air since, I think, 1927. And uh, between 1927 and now, I think the station has had a total of three morning men Oh wow. uh, Wally Crowder, I think, holds the world's record for the longest-serving morning man. He was there for like 60 years. So I, I, um, I grew up uh, on radio, learning from and working with some real luminaries up here in Canada. And then when I found myself behind the microphone, I had to figure out how am I going to fill, uh, I think it was three hours on a Sunday night originally. Hmm. And I didn't want to talk about garbage strikes and municipal elections and there were you know countless of other people doing it uh, already and doing probably a much better job than I could so i i gravitated towards the 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 things that i've always been interested in since i i could remember uh, the big questions why are we here what happens after we die are we alone in the universe uh what's that sound uh you know in the uh stomping around in the woods uh who's running the show uh, so,
0: yeah,
2: I started to do that on on the air and it, uh, bit by bit, and gradually it took over and then, and then as it as often happens, it sort of took over my life and that eventually led uh this is the Reader's digest version that eventually led to a television show uh, of the same name, but a half hour format documentary style that airs across Canada on vision TV and we just uh just this week, I believe. Uh, through PPI uh, releasing,
0: uh, are now
2: available in the U.S. Uh, Nice. uh, I believe 52 episodes, and um, I think we're starting out with about 40 40 markets across the U.S. Oh, wow, nice. And back in 2009, I got a call from, at the time, it was Trevor Oliver, who was the vice president of talk programming at Premier. A fellow, Kanaki, was from Montreal, and he asked me, what I like to fill in for George Norrie who on a Friday night who was celebrating his daughter's birthday. And uh that was like getting a call up to the Yankees.
0: Um
2: and so, um I did that show in two thousand and nine and and it was a thrill. I never expected to get a call back and there was a bit of a dry spell. Uh <laughs> I started again in uh in, in January of, of this year doing some more coast uh fill in and uh which is just you know, it's kind of one of those pinch-me moments every time I go on the air on Coast, uh, just because of the, you know, obviously the the legendary antecedents to this program. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of the 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 radio TV side of the conspiracy show, um, and I have a couple other irons in the fire, uh, some live events that I'm getting involved in, and uh, I. I I teach uh, part time at a, a school for media art and design just east of Toronto, and other than that, just running around uh you know chauffeuring my twin boys uh, to school and piano lessons and regular dad stuff. exactly yeah, well see yeah, yeah it's uh, it's just refreshing that you have the balance between <laughs> having
1: a normal human life and uh and being mixed up in all this because as you said, it does take over your life it's a rabbit hole once you go down it, it changes your your vision of reality sometimes.
2: Yeah there there was a time just after my my boys were born uh and they're going to be 8 in October but just after they were born I thought I'm I got I I got to get away from this so I decided to try and do a quote end quote normal talk show talking about the garbage strike and municipal budgets <laughs> and, and my heart was not in it I I tried I gave it the old college try but I, you know it's true you can't go back I guess it's uh now going back to uh, I heard rumors people that took acid um, <laughs> you know say you know <laughs> you never you, once the the you know the doors of perception right but once that's mm. opened you just you cannot uh you can't go back nothing is the same but you do need the balance I I know someone up here in Toronto on the air who uh who talks um, about the Illuminati every every Saturday night for three hours. No guests, no calls. Oh wow. Uh, which is a real feat. I mean, I admire that. But, uh, and I knew, I, I knew him, he was a colleague at another radio station and uh, he would trap you in the hall and, you know, there was 20 minutes you'd never get back because he would just, he, he just lived it and breathed it 24-7. And I felt bad for him because... Again, no balance, certainly dedicated to the, the craft and everything, but I can't live my life that way.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Cause it, 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 well, it's a troubling – I've struggled with this on the show here at times, too. It's You know, I often say it's like if there really is this grand conspiracy, I don't see how we can get out of this mess we found ourselves in, the average person. It's
0: like it's over.
1: You know, if everything Alex Jones says is true, then it's done. It's over. We've lost. I find myself in that kind of state sometimes. I mean, I continue on to try and get the word out and talk about it and sort of analyze what's happening. But at the same time, it's it's a very daunting. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not like it, you know we're both baseball fans. It's not like being a baseball fan. It's not the end. It sucks if if the, if the if the if the Blue Jays or the Red Sox don't make the playoffs, but it's not the end of the world. You don't lose. But it, right. in this in this realm, it's like it, like I said, if if everything Alex Jones is saying or, or some of these conspiracy folks are saying, it's like. We've lost, man. scary. Scary stuff.
2: Yeah, it it would appear that uh, this elite cabal has everything locked down, and hence, Alex Jones' term, uh, the prison planet. We are living in a prison planet. And not to get uh, overtly religious, but... um, I mean, I I, I run everything through my faith filter. So, I mean, for me personally, I know ultimately the good guys win. Hmm. So, I sort of hold on to that. And then, between... You know, here and the apocalypse, there's always, uh, you know, baseball. There's always baseball, which is a, is a healthy diversion. And I'm, I'm sort of gravitating toward, back to, to baseball, uh, taking the boys, took the boys to see a Yankees game uh, and see Derek Jeter play before he hangs them up. And I realize how the importance of um, the, these little diversions, as long as they remain diversions and not obsessions. But we need exactly. them. Otherwise, we'd go crazy. We'd, we'd, we'd shoot our brains out. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'll far, I'm going to
1: formally invite you into the league of uh, of baseball specialists here on the show. So we have to get you back in touch uh, this spring to to compete with Lauren Coleman and uh, Rich Dolan and Adam Go Rightly in, in in the baseball uh, predictions contest.
2: I didn't know that uh, Rich Dolan was a was a ball fan. I, I, I'm very fond of Richard. He's uh, a delightful. A uh, learned man, and I, um, I always enjoy uh, speaking with him. But I didn't know that he was uh, a ball fan. No, oh, yeah. Now, big he, time. Let's see. He's in Rochester. Uh, that used to be the Triple A team for Baltimore, but I'm not sure if, that that's probably changed.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I only know uh, the Syracuse Sky Chiefs because <laughs> I went to school up there. Um, that's right. I'm hearing a weird sort of sound when you talk a little bit like sleigh bells or something in the background, but I don't know if it's uh like a shh sound, but I don't know if it's no they
2: are sleigh bells. this is the north Pole. <laughs> <laughs> uh I'm not sure what that is. I'm holding a a very large glass of water are you on speakerphone i um, I am do you want me to turn that off i just i'm trying to keep the i'm on a a mobile and I'm trying to keep my brain cells intact so
1: all right, well, we'll survive. Don't worry about it. We'll survive as long as it's kind of one of those things. If I acknowledge it, then people will uh, they'll refrain from emailing me about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <All right. laughs> I once had a rooster in the background at Jim Mars's place, and it was like finally halfway through the interview, I was like, "Is that a rooster?" Just you know, I got I gotta get that off off the table here. Is that a rooster in the background? Which it was.
2: Of course, yeah. sure. Well, is live radio grand? Uh, <laughs> uh, I was in in Grants Pass, uh, Oregon. Uh, shout out to Lisa Lyon, um, who lives there. Uh, we were, we were uh, doing a um, an episode of the TV show, and we had just returned. We were on our way back from Olympia, Washington, where I had been interviewing Andrew Bashago about time travel, and we had to we had to get back to L.A. Uh, to catch a flight home. And um, but I had to stop en route because I had to do my Sunday night show, and I had my my mixer and my you know using Skype to connect back to the studio in Toronto yes yeah. we only we checked into the hotel with uh, with the intention of only staying a few hours once I did my show we'd get back in in the van and keep driving but the uh, the cameraman and the director were were tired so they decided to take a a, a snooze and while I'm on the air my cameraman starts snoring <laughs> and and uh, people were just they were calling into the uh, the studio in Toronto like crazy saying, you know, is, have you fallen asleep or has someone fallen asleep or what's the snoring? <laughs> it was just, there's nothing you can do, you know. It's one of those things and it's live radio and uh, we had a good laugh about it the, the following week when I, when I found out actually, you know, that the snoring had been heard all over North America.
1: That's crazy. That's crazy.
2: Now, I guess uh, one
1: thing is kind of goofy that I wanted to mention because you are from Toronto area. So, what's what, what's your take on the whole Rob Ford thing? That guy, that guy's quite the character. Is he gonna get is he gonna get reelected? And uh, and and you know, overall, what's what's your take on all that?
2: Well, uh, in, in a very small way, I am so, somewhat responsible for Rob Ford being mayor. <laughs> oh, nice. Well, here's what happened. Uh, I was producing the morning show at AM 640 in Toronto, and Rob was sort of the lone conservative counselor uh, on, on city council, uh, and the, the re- remaining 35 or 40 counselors, or however however many there are, were sort of left-leaning, left of center, and um, so I, and Rob at that time, of course, as he is now, was very bombastic, and, and uh, uh, I decided to, to bring him on the, the morning show once a week, oh, wow. and... And we called the segment, What's Eating Rob Ford? <laughs> because he was always complaining about, and, 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 and rightfully so. Some of the, you know, the misappropriation of funds at City Hall, they were, you know, he'd uncover things like they'd, they, they, they paid $100,000 a year to hire two people to water plants in City Hall. And oh, wow. Like that. He was always counting pennies, which I appreciated. And being somewhat right of Attila the Hun myself, um, I kind of, I liked him. Quite frankly, so I we we turned this into a weekly segment, and lo and behold, Rob Ford becomes this. We gave him a platform, and he became kind of a cult hero. Uh, and you know, he he said, "One day I'm going to run for mayor." And we sure, yeah, sure, Rob. Why not? <laughs> uh, and in fact, I before those, I don't know if you saw the YouTube uh, parody. Someone took all of the um, these clips from Tommy Boy. Mm. Uh, and um, sort of strung them together and, and made it look like it was Rob Ford, Tommy Boy, who was that late uh, actor from Saturday Night Live? Um, yeah, Chris Farley. Chris Farley, right. Well, I used to call Rob Ford Tommy Boy because he used to come into the
0: studio and
2: he, and he had that kind of that shuffle and walk, and of course, he's a hefty guy. So he reminded me of Chris Farley, so I called him, not to his face, but I used to refer to him as Tommy Boy. Yeah. And he, then that YouTube video came out, but uh, so yeah, I had I had left the station uh, several years before he decided to run for mayor. But I I looked back and I thought, yeah, I, I sort of was the one that gave him that platform. Uh, Willie, he, he's he's pretty much in a neck and neck uh, tie with uh, John Tory, uh, the former leader of the Conservative Party of Ontario. Uh, so yeah, he's not done by any stretch, and wow. anyone who's he is, I think, is, is, uh, is gonna, is in for a rude awakening. He could definitely pull this one off. Uh, it comes down to this, I think. Uh, people in Toronto would rather have an alcoholic, uh, drug addict, uh, or someone, how did I put it the other day, someone who drinks like a sailor versus someone who spends like one. Mm. Uh, they just, they, you know, they, they've just had it with, um tax and spend policies that have been the, the rule of the day up here in Toronto for decades upon decades upon decades so uh, and there's just it's a it's a real conundrum who to vote for because you've got um, you've got a left leaning uh, candidate who I think would like to take us back to those tax and spend days and then you've got um, John Tory who's a very nice man but sort of center maybe slightly right of center but uh, I just don't feel is going to get the job done, and then Rob, who's a total train wreck. I mean, what do you do? Um, it's, it's, it's. I don't know. Uh, it's it's funny to too because it's ironic in a way because he's
1: also now it, he he has like sort of a weird demographic because like, he's kind of a celebrity too. So it's, he has like the sort of the people who will vote for him probably out of just sheer like kitch value or something.
2: Yeah, I think when it comes, unfortunately, when it comes to most elections, seventy percent of it is just name recognition, hmm. uh, and uh, that may that may win the day for him. Yeah. Um, yeah. If he can, if he can, if he can uh, stay out of the the, the drunk tank for the next <laughs> four years, uh, then you know, I'd, I'd be inclined. Uh, people might be cringing to hear this, but I'd be inclined to put him in again, just because we can't go back to those days. Of of spent taxing and spending, and and this this city is it's a beautiful city. Johnny Carson had a great line when he visited here once. He said, "This is a great city if they ever get it done." It's just constantly under construction, and and we're we're lacking sort of the serious infrastructure. We compare ourselves to New York, but we're not. We I mean we're fifty years behind in terms of public transit. We don't have the infrastructure. They should have been you know burrowing underground uh, a, a mile every year and uh, they just haven't been because the money's just been frittered away, so...
1: Weird. That's disappointing. Now,
2: have you have you noticed,
1: being Canadian, have you noticed any sort of uh, difference in perspectives on conspiracy theory with regards to, you know, people from Canada versus uh, Americans?
2: Yeah, I, I, some uh, media types up here in Toronto think that Toronto's a hotbed uh, of conspiracies, and, and that may be because there's a couple of shows... Uh, and there's a, a, a pretty prominent bookstore up here in Toronto as well called Conspiracy Culture, but I, by and large, I find Canadians have an unhealthy trust of authority, uh, and so they are a little more reluctant, I think, to embrace a lot of conspiracy theory, versus our American friends. And and I, uh, my ancestors are from America, uh, and and I, I think, sort of philosophically. Maybe spiritually, emotionally, I consider myself to be a bit of Amer- an American. I refer, the re- I prefer the Republican form of government, constitutional republic, and so forth. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a there's a great line from a comedian up here by the name of Hart Pomerantz describing the difference between Americans and Canadians, and said, uh, "Americans shot their parents; we still send money home."
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man, wow, yeah. Um, well, it's also, it's interesting in a sense, too, because when you think about it, especially from the way you just put it from that joke, it's like it. a lot of the conspiracy theories, most of the really popular ones, like 9-11 and, and the JFK conspiracy theory, particularly, they're American conspiracy theories. So from outside of America, could, I could see how the perspective might kind of be like, you don't really get it. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about you. I just mean like people outside of America, where they might see it and they'd be like, "Oh, those Americans—they're—they can't—they can't deal with reality, or God knows what they really think." So, but it's—it's it's sort of like it's a uniquely American thing as far as these two big conspiracies go.
2: Um, it, it's interesting in many respects. It is. Um, however, if you look at the foreign press, uh, what gets—and now, now we're, we're comparing sort of mainstream news gathering outlets here. Hmm if you look if you look at the north american press uh they are very there's almost a firewall around them uh mm, yeah. in 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 that they will not acknowledge um you know even the idea that a conspiracy is possible and to me it's it's absolutely preposterous uh thinking that nothing is a conspiracy is as ridiculous and as about as useful an idea as saying that everything is a conspiracy but if you look at the foreign press, uh, let's take, for example, uh, the death of Princess Diana. We just passed the 17th anniversary, which just boggles the mind. I can't believe it's been 17 years.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: but, uh, for example, in, in, uh, in places like Egypt, uh, mainstream press there were reporting that she was likely the victim of foul play. Um, that, you just wouldn't see that, kind of even that kind of speculation uh in the mainstream press here, yeah, so the foreign press, it's quite interesting the way that they look at conspiracy. Uh, I think they have a, a sort of a a more honest uh, approach to it that um, you know conspiracies happen. two people get in a room and they conspire to do something illegal. A conspiracy, as our friend Jim Marr says, is not a theory, it's a crime. so uh, I think yeah the the rest of the world made uh, may report on these things uh, as sort of political subterfuge or politics as usual, whereas we here in the West call it conspiracy.
1: Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Plus, there seems to be also uh, like this this distrust of you know America's always kind of up to something nefarious or shady, so I can see why other countries would also be like, well, you know, we know you guys are you know you get your hand in a lot of cookie jars, so who knows what you're really up to.
2: <laughs> well, I, I, I again I think I think I I appreciate the American culture and its its healthy mistrust of authority. I wish we had uh a little bit more of that up here, quite frankly. So, it is it is part of the culture. I mean, the, the nation was forged uh in you know, overthrowing tyranny. Uh and um uh, you know, we talk a lot about that on, on the show, as does Coast to Coast. You know, the um, uh, abuse of power, which kind of falls under the rubric of, of conspiracy, but it's it's not really. I mean, we know it's happening. Uh, the erosion of civil rights and and um, uh, you know, political subterfuge, which we call conspiracy, but it's it's just the way the world is run, unfortunately. Uh, and so, um, I, I think Americans just have their antenna up for that kind of thing. Mm. But we, just to just circle back to kind of what I was saying
1: before, it's like, I feel like there's a begrudging distrust of authority in a sense. People just don't want to do anything anymore about, about it. Do you know what I mean? I fi- like I said, I find that it, it, it's very troubling in a sense where, I mean, well, you see, like I talked about how it seems like we may have lost the whole battle. It's like, look at that whole Ferguson thing. It's, I mean, the only way to defeat these authority figures is to, like, shame them now. Shame them for their misuse of their authority. Uh, that seems to be the only way to actually succeed because uh, like an uprising of any sort of revolutionary sense it seems, uh, you know, futile.
2: Yeah, there is uh, unfortunately a resignation. Um, uh, one would hope that, you know, with with, with a realization and, and an awakening there would be a call to action. But, and, and you know, people like Alex Jones and others, uh, Jesse Ventura might argue, well, this is exactly... What these unelected oligarchs had in mind is to just bombard uh bombard our our psyches with with bad news and 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 uh, running down politicians and government uh and so that we ultimately just despair and throw our hands up and say, "Well, there's nothing we can do about it," and then they've got us because that's exactly what they want
0: hmm. well so yeah I think
1: I think maybe. Just to hammer home the point that uh that I was just that had never really occurred to me till I was just talking to you about it, but it's uh it does seem like like public activism and 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 sort of calling out uh of the authority for misuse of their of their power may be the most effective tool too at the same time because it seems like eventually if you, if you can get public opinion behind something it really helps to make change and uh hopefully that that could be used to a greater good. Like, you kind of saw it a little bit with, like, the whole NSA thing, but it kind of died out. People don't – they were outraged, but they didn't really know what to do about it. But I think the more pressure you put on on the, the power structure to to be more honest, and if you can kind of get the, the the groundswell going, maybe it helps. We'll switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about some of the more paranormal elements of stuff you've you've explored. Is there any particular, you know, realm of the paranormal that you find – you know, really interesting. Like my kind of bailiwick is UFOs. I've always found that to be the most uh, prominent of, of stuff that stood out to me that I've kind of really dug my heels into and uh, and tried to explore. But is there anything in that realm that's uh, particularly interesting to you? Uh,
2: well, likewise, UFOs obviously is a, is a huge uh, area. And um, I, I, I conducted a little kind of a marketing tool on my website. I I, um, I asked people to vote for the sort of their favorite Subject area or field, mm-hmm. and I had about 18 topics, everything from UFOs to uh, political assassinations, GMOs, fluoride, chemtrails, secret societies, end times prophecy, all that. Yeah. And and far and away the number one topic uh, is is UFOs and ETs. Uh, people cannot cannot get enough of it. And and you know if, if Dolan were, were here, he'd say this is the most important issue of our time maybe maybe the most important issue of all time as to you know who are they what are they why are they here and is the government keeping a lid on all this so yeah ufos um, i I, and i i came late to that dance because um uh i don't know why but i didn't really get into the uh into that subject matter until i hooked up with um a guy here in toronto who's uh, a ufo disclosure advocate called victor vigiani and and he sort of dragged me kicking and screaming into uh into the into this area and i i don't know i can't even remember what my reticence was at the time i guess maybe i just i, I didn't um, i didn't know how to wrap my head around it
0: mm.
2: you know how do you how do you wrap your head around you know 150 million people have seen one of these things since 1947 according to a un report how do you what do you do with that you know and all these uh reams and reams and reams of of government documents showing that they're concerned about UFOs and they've scrambled jets to, to intercept UFOs. And um, it's um, it's a tough one for me because it, it doesn't, again, coming back to my, my faith filter, uh, you know, there's, there are some difficulties there with that. So I have to try and figure out how does that fit the UFO issue? How does that fit into, for example, you know, the, the biblical narrative? Yeah. So, um, but uh, what what amazes me about the UFO ET issue is how many different levels or layers there are are to it. If Hmm. you're talking about something like Bigfoot, it's just a question, well, does it or doesn't it exist? And you have field researchers out there trying to collect samples. And um, uh, George Knapp had a terrific interview the other night with uh, this woman who's, you know, Sent these DNA samples out to labs, and and they've all come back positive. You know, this is an unknown species, and so forth. Um, but that's about that's about all there is to it, as far as I can tell. But with, with UFOs, there's 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 uh, the alien technology, free energy, which sort of dovetails with um, you know the, the the big oil, right, uh, and and big pharma, and then you've got You've got the whole disclosure aspect and the Majestic 12 and uh, Area 51 and Wright-Patterson. and It just goes on and on. Uh, there are so many sort of threads and they're interwoven in such an uh, incredible web that you could spend a thousand lifetimes just trying to untangle this thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's like the, what's really going on could run a whole spectrum of stuff that that, that range is just a completely wide range, you know, it's like the government may know absolutely nothing, or the government may know everything, and they may be working in cahoots with the aliens, or somewhere in between. It's like, you don't have any idea. It's really a, it's a very maddening subject, and it's it's a, I, I I don't know about you, but it's like, when you talk about the mass of information, it's very frustrating that it's still such a, such a put-upon concept. You'd think by now, like you were talking about the, the international media, like, uh, being a little more open about conspiracy theories and stuff, but it's still UFOs still remains this really taboo thing to uh, to treat with an honest look.
0: Yeah, uh,
2: it, it, well, it, I think that's changing. Again, we we look at the foreign press; they take this very seriously in places like France and Italy and and Brazil uh, and uh, Canada and the United States. Uh, continue to to treat this topic with that sort of idiotic tongue-in-cheek, chortle, 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 crazy lady down the street saw, you know, some lights in the sky last night, um, which, you know, just makes me believe that there may be more to this whole disclosure aspect than, you know, than, than um, we're, we're led to believe, that at some level, and it it's there's a glass ceiling and and part of me thinks reporters just know in terms of career uh in terms of job security it's not something that they're supposed to touch or at least handle in a serious manner mm. but part of me also thinks you know there i mean we know from um the rolling stone uh, magazine piece back in the late seventies it was written by um oh all the king's men uh washington post reporter watergate. Uh, help me out, Tim. I'm 50. I'm, my brain's... silver and Bernstein? Yes. Uh, it was, um, it was Woodward, I, I think. No, it was Carl Bernstein, uh, who, who, who talked about the infiltration, uh, of intelligence groups into mainstream news gathering services. And, and so, and, and I believe that. I mean, I, I think, I don't even think it's, it's an arguable or disputable fact at this point. Um, and so, you know, at some level, I'm, I'm tending to believe that someone's, you know, pulling some strings and, and, and saying you will not cover that or you can cover it, but we're not going to follow it up. Uh, you know, this 24 hour news cycle is crazy. Like uh, we could be told one day, in fact, we were told Edgar Mitchell, sixth man to walk on the moon. Uh, he was touring, I think, in London at the time. Is was going back, I think, mid to early 90s, and he said that everything we've heard about, you know, aliens and UFOs and Roswell is true, and I've been told by top-level people at the Pentagon and people at NASA and so forth. And that made a huge splash in the, in the news for about 24 hours. And then it was gone. Like, where's the follow-up? How, how do you put that out there and then just leave it there and not follow up? it'd be like being told that there is a killer asteroid hurtling towards earth a planet killer there's nothing we can do about it and then the next day nothing they don't they don't talk about it anymore
1: yeah yeah it's really weird you wonder if the you wonder if, like, sort of the motivation of the journalists gets dampened, too, in the sense, like you're saying, they're not going to follow up on it. So I guess if you're the journalist, you're like, well, why should I bother writing this story about UFOs? Why should I even look into this? Because it's never going to gain any traction. And, you know, even beyond the ridicule factor, it's like, why, it's a dead-end story, uh, you know, so why chase it, it seems. Maybe that might be part of the mindset.
2: Yeah, you're definitely onto something, Tim. It's it's the, um, it's the, the, uh the, the peer pressure or, or yeah, losing respect of colleagues and so forth. You know, um, former KGB officer, I think his name was Primakov, actually ended up uh, advising Homeland Security after the Iron um, Curtain fell and after 9/11, he came over. And Primakov was blown away uh, at the way that information is controlled in the media here. Uh, he was actually, you know, kind of jealous. He said you know we had we took gulags to do that we had to have you know people thrown into exile in gulags and you don't need any of that you just ostracize people and it works far more effectively
1: yeah yeah well it's like they it seems like they figured out how to create a sort of tyrannical government uh <laughs> control of the Of the world, uh, the the American way or the Western way is 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 like you do it without by not doing it by brute force, by just wearing people down and sort of just distracting them with with uh, also entertainment type crap.
2: Sure, bread and circuses. It's uh, I call it the fur line trap. Uh, You know we we have we're in we're in cages. We're slaves. We're in a cage, but we but they're such well appointed cages. You know we've got all the toys we need. Uh, and i mean who who 's willing to give that up yeah we we almost welcome uh, you know that that kind of uh, imprisonment and the other thing with the furline line trap is if if you 're a let 's say you 're a um, a white House correspondent and uh, you know you 're sending your kids to a a nice private school maybe in in Georgetown or Washington or somewhere in virginia you 've got um, Beautiful wife, beautiful house, or beautiful, you know, handsome husband, as the case may be. A couple of cars in the garage. You got all the toys you need. Life is good. Why would you risk that by by putting up your hand and asking a potentially damaging question to the president?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it makes it makes perfect sense from their perspective. So all we're left with the people like you know, the rabble rousers like <laughs> like you and I, who can't who can't get a meeting with the president, unfortunately, but. uh, Do you think that we're going to see any kind of breakthrough in all this? Because, I mean, like, you've been doing this for a long time. I've been doing this for a long time at this point. Uh, You know, I've been looking at this for 11 years now. You've obviously been at this whole thing a lot longer than I have. You know, it's very frustrating in a sense you wonder if we're ever going to get any sort of breakthrough or if it's just going to be the slow uh, evolution of the idea and, you know, hope that maybe the next generation will come along and, and they'll change things
2: yeah it's it's just a kind of a, a never ending parade of empires uh, and we're we're sort of sitting back and watching empires rise and then collapse and then another one comes along and takes its place uh so you know this has been going on for 5000 years i guess uh and ultimately um again i believe it 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 will end but um i don't know how close we are to midnight i mean um well, I meant
1: the UFO mystery, though. I meant, like, do you think we'll get a breakthrough, like a, like a, like, do you think we'll ever get, uh, you know, any kind of clear-cut answer to all this? Uh, or, or do you think it will always be sort of teased out to uh, to people, you know, at least well, for our, our lifetime?
2: Well, assuming that there is a very, there's a vast, complex system in place to keep a lid on it, uh, you know, what's at stake? Uh, why are why they e- exerted so much effort and spent probably, you know, trillions of dollars to keep a lid on this thing. Um, Whatever the reason is, and whether it has to do with free energy or some breakaway civilization, as Dolan describes it, that, you know, they want all the alien technology and they may even, in fact, be off-planet by now, which is why they don't give a tinker's damn about what goes on down here. Um, I don't see them giving that up anytime soon uh, without any good reason. Yeah. So no, I mean I don't think I don't think we're going to get disclosure from the president. I don't think the president has it in his power. I don't think he's got even the security clearance. I don't think he's in the loop.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I don't think the I certainly don't think the president uh <laughs> would even have the ability or the power to do that sort of thing. Well, I guess here's an interesting sort of perspective on things. Maybe cuz I'm sure you've talked to a lot of folks up there in Canada. What cuz the, the the American quote unquote knowledge of UFOs has this incredible, um, you know, narrative that's gone on. We don't even know what's true and what's not, but it's good, you know, the canon. It's like a comic book. It's, it's, it's this vast history of, uh, of various characters and theories and stories and stuff. What's the, what's the situation up there in Canada? What, or at least what do the people who research UFOs think the situation is? Like, what is the Canadian, what do they think the Canadian government knows about all this?
2: Well, um, funny you should ask, because um, the former defense minister up here, Paul Hellyer, in fact, he was deputy prime minister, so he was a heartbeat away from becoming the prime minister uh, back in the 70s when he was deputy prime minister to Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and then he was defense minister in the 1960s. not a very popular one for a host of reasons, but uh, very bright, uh, learned fellow now in his his, uh, late 80s. And about five or six years ago, after he had been out of office for, for some time, um, my friend Victor Vigiani, who I mentioned earlier, convinced the Right Honorable Paul Hellier to stand up in public and proclaim his knowledge of UFOs and and, uh, intera- and, and alien interaction with uh, human uh, civilization, and he and he did that at a great. Uh, risk, you know, to his legacy. There's no reason why he needed to do that. But but Paul Hellyer has had conversations with um, unnamed U.S. high-ranking military officials. and uh, Now, he wasn't privy to any of this while he was defense minister or while he was deputy prime minister, but he again was told that everything we've heard about Roswell and alien bodies and, and uh, back engineered alien technology everything is true and more that 's a direct quote. everything is true and more um, so that really I, I think at the time Helio was the highest ranking um, government official to ever go on the record to say something like that yeah so that caused quite a stir up here, but again, you know uh it got a little bit of news coverage. And kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, treatment. Well, the poor old, doddering fool. He's in his 80s, after all. You know, we can't expect him to be of sound mind. Which was incredibly disrespectful. I mean, I've, I've talked to Paul Hellier on a number of occasions, and and he, he, he may be 88 or 89, but his, I mean, his he's got a, a mind like a steel trap. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, um, we, I think we 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 look at the UFO issue sort of through the American lens because again we look back to Roswell just as you do uh, um, or the uh, you know the Battle of uh, Battle of Los Angeles uh, or any of these high profile UFO sightings so I think we we do have our own sort of Canadian experiences we have a very famous UFO incident that happened in 1967 in uh, Atlantic Canada called Shag Harbor oh yeah where uh, a, a UFO was uh, seen um, by uh, by military police, uh, it uh, it landed, crash landed on um, in Shag Harbour on the on the water. Uh, they scrambled rescue teams. Uh, I mean, it, it was a mass sighting, and, and right, right, uh, again, very famous. Case. The military people, RCMP. There was a there's a government document trail. It's all there. I mean, I think it it, it, it is one of the few uh, UFO incidents to actually uh, be called a UFO incident in a government document. Oh wow!
1: That's pretty. That's pretty amazing.
2: Yeah. So, um, and 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 then uh, you know. Tons of sightings up here,
1: of course. Uh, so when candidates. did – so you said Paul Hellyer didn't hear about – because I, I, I read the story a while ago, and like you said, it's like – I feel bad because it got buried in a sense. It should be – it should it have been like the Edward Snowden type thing. It should have been something that, like, launched a massive, uh, uh, you know, media wave, but it never did. So uh, so I, I, I'm fuzzy on the details here, but you said he didn't hear about all this stuff when he was the deputy prime minister. When did he hear about all the UFO stuff?
2: Uh, what happened was someone sent him um, a copy of Phil Corso's book, The Day After Roswell. Oh, okay. And, and he read it, was intrigued by it, started calling some former colleagues down in the United States, uh, unnamed at this point, hmm. uh, again, including some high-ranking military people. And at least some of them or one of them confided in him and said, yes, it's, it's all true.
1: Oh, man. I wish those people would
2: speak up, then.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, we need names. We need names.
0: Hmm. If
2: this, if we're going to move this thing forward, we we need we need more, more people like Paul Helier coming forward. But I mean, Helier is hearing about it second or third hand.
0: Right, right.
1: Yeah, he's 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 just getting the info from from here. So, but you're right. We need more. We need more people to speak out about it. More people who know stuff. You'd hope that would that would help, but. I've grown very pessimistic about what might break this thing open as far as UFOs go, unless it's – we need, like, another big event, you know. It seems like we haven't – I know Stephenville was big, but that's, that's going on. That's been a long time now since that happened. So you, you hope for, like, some some crazy event that's going to really uh, galvanize the public again.
2: Yeah, I don't know what – I mean, what more does it is needed? We have – going back to Stephenville, I mean, we have police officers saying,
0: yeah,
2: I saw it. It was so large it obliterated the night sky, it was like a, a box store hovering above me silently. Uh, I mean, what more do we need? You have, you have police officers, you have ex-presidents, you have yeah. congressmen, you have scientists, you have very credible people who have seen these things, uh, up close, uh, multiple times and, and yet, that's not that's not good enough. I mean, they they leave you know they we have uh, we have radar uh, corroborating what people say they saw from the ground. So, I I'm I, like you. I, I don't I don't hold out much hope that this is we're ever going to get any formal acknowledgement. But do we really need that even? I mean, it's it, we know it's enough mm. that we know. Do we actually need some some bureaucrat? Standing in, at the you know the, the 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 National Press Gallery, acknowledging what many or most of us have accepted for a very long time.
0: Right, right. I guess
2: right. part part of part of us we do. We need that. We need that vindication or uh, uh, acknowledgement, perhaps.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like I think the the society or reality needs like the the switch to be flipped, uh, where where we, it, 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 it's okay to deal with all this stuff. I think that's the that's the bigger issue. You know what I mean? It's like it, how it happens. If a UFO crashes in you know in Cowboy Stadium or something like that, then then that'll change. You know, we just need something to sort of flip that switch over. But I've talked about this on the show before. I mean, maybe you can sort of give me your thoughts on this conundrum that faces the UFO issue, and that's that. You know, like the old uh, shampoo commercial says, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And the UFOs had their chance to make the first impression in the 40s, and the 50s, and the 60s, and it kind of they kind of blew their first impression, you know, <laughs> through, through through nefarious help from the U.S. Right, government. Right. But you know you know what I mean? It's like the the idea of UFOs is already it, people have already made their minds up about it, and, and we're we're in a hole as far as those of us who are trying to get people to change their minds, or, or at least open their minds to it. We're we're in a deep hole here as far as uh, trying to change that. Public relations baggage that it carries
0: yeah uh,
2: well which which leads into a whole host of other questions i mean how many how many uh, e t uh, civilizations are we dealing with some of some of which don't uh, don't care to make an impression, others could care less uh, i mean uh, the other question is is how are they going to and i say they uh, the government or whomever, how are they going to come out and say, all right, yes, we've lied to you for the last 70 years, uh, but now believe us when we tell you this, and this is what's going on. Uh, and also, uh, I mean, people have people have paid with their lives uh, for trying to uh, either, they paid trying to uncover the truth, or they've, they've died as a result of this cover-up. For example, you look at the, the astronauts uh, that died uh, during the Mercury um, rocket program or even the, the shuttle program? Why are we still using highly volatile rocket fuel uh, to propel people up into space if, for example, uh, we've had anti-gravitics for the last 50 years, as some speculate. Hmm. Uh, but that's been kept from us. So they, they, whoever they are, they've got blood on their hands. Um, so for them now to come forward and acknowledge that Puts them in a bit of a um, precarious situation, uh, which has led some people on the UFO disclosure side to say, "Well, we need to offer them amnesty. If we're ever going to get that acknowledgement, we have to at least promise them, well, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to prosecute them for crimes against humanity or, or murder or, or what have you."
1: How do we? Hit, who has the right to do that, though? Who, who can? Uh, a, who can speak exactly. up and say you uh, have amnesty? <laughs>
2: There you go. Yeah, you see, it's it's just such a convoluted, <laughs> complex issue.
1: Hmm. Yeah. You almost, you know, we talk about the Armageddon, that whole idea, but you almost wonder if it's if it's going to take some kind of like I remember, I forget his name now. He passed away. I, I feel bad. The guy, the he was um, Tortuga was his website, and he pushed for the moon calendar. And I was a big fan of, of switching to a moon calendar. But I,
2: oh yes, yes, I, I know who you mean. Ah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, it escapes me, but uh, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll maybe someone in the chat can come up with it. But the, the point being that he, I think he argued that, like, it was already too late, but he was like 9-11 would have been a great time to institute the moon calendar. Like, when things stop, when things, we need, like, a change to to actually, we need, like, a, a point to catch our breath, then maybe things can change and, uh, you know, we can... We can Get the implement. reset button. Yeah, yeah, exactly, reset
2: button. So. On the other hand, you know, if if this thing is this thing, meaning the UFO issue, the e, and ET issue, is laid to rest, uh, you know, maybe you and I and George Nori and the rest will all be out of work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, once this becomes, and I I often wonder, you know, some of the stuff that we talk about, Tim, is some of it anyway, is becoming a little more palatable for the mainstream. Um, And I remember the Washington Post at the end of 2013 were doing a year-end review of the year that was. And, of course, that was the year of Snowden and so forth. Mm. And the headline that ran was 2013, the year that proved your paranoid friends are right. And uh, I I thought, yeah, you know, it's getting to the point where a lot of the stuff that I talk about on my show, or maybe it gets discussed on on Coast and, and maybe that you talk about, more and more people are are just sort of accepting of, of these things, and it's not it's not like we're doing this subversive you know pirate radio anymore. It's oh, yeah. it's it's going mainstream.
1: Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. I, I I was talking about that with Greg Bishop on the year our year interview show that the uh, the Snowden story was like a big win for the conspiracy community, which is good because we need a win every now and again we need a big one so you know it's a difficult uh it's a difficult challenge this whole field uh, which brings me to to 911 now you're you've been in this you 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 predate 911 uh presumably right
2: uh by a couple of years
1: yes. okay yeah so what's your take because i find this interesting and i like to get different guests opinions especially folks who uh who delve a lot in conspiracy just looking at it as a whole you know not the event itself but the 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 uh you know the attempts to un- unravel what really happened what do you think of like sort of the birth and the evolution and what looks like sort of the stagnation of this community that rose on 911 of, of of you know the 911 truth community as it's called
2: yeah stagnation is is a is a great uh, a term we were just talking about the ufo issue and there i see some parallels you know you've got Let's say, for example, you've got the MUFON groups out there, which they're wonderful people, volunteers, and they're out there, and they're trying to catalog these sightings. But if you talk to MUFON people about alien abductions or crop circles or, you know, whatever, Close Encounters of the third time, they don't want to hear about it. They say, no, 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 you're way too, you know, down, you know, you're, you're going too down, far down the road. You're, yeah. you're ahead of the curve here. We're not prepared to talk about that. Um, and and there's a lot of that sort of same mentality Unfortunately, in the 9/11 uh, truther movement, where they get married to certain ideas, and it becomes like a religion. Well, let's say, for example, controlled demolition. So, uh, for example, you know, I've stated on my program a number of times that uh, I'm I'm not convinced anymore that it was controlled demolition. How do you how do you wire 110 story buildings, 210 story buildings, without somebody noticing? Can you imagine the amount of cable you'd have to string and so forth. Just, right, right. Um, there had to be
1: a janitor lurking around there that would have seen something.
2: Exactly. But, I mean, the whole notion that nine eleven was an inside job doesn't rise and fall on controlled demolition, but they don't see it that way. So if you attack controlled demolition or you question it, uh, you um, suddenly they start treating you the way... Sort of the mainstream media has been treating the 9/11 crowd in general. Hmm. So the you know the slaves become the oppressor, uh, and that's unfortunate. It's to me though the whole logistics of how it happened um, has become paramount to it to the movement's detriment. It's like counting blades of grass on the grassy knoll. You know we it, it's not that. Im- Important, ultimately, in the big picture, Mm. how the buildings were brought down. um, You know, what did these jets actually fly into the towers? Was it a hologram? Uh, You know, the the means is not so important. The motive is important. Yeah. Um, The opportunity is also important. And I don't think we spend enough time talking about the, the, the motive and the opportunity and we spend too much time talking about the means. And, and, and the, some conspiracy minded would say yes, that's the whole idea. You know, that the, uh, these intelligence groups and so forth have infiltrated these groups and they've got us all running around chasing our, our tails and fighting each other. Hmm. There's so much infighting now in the
0: 9-11
2: movement, just like there, there is in the UFO community. Uh, and in the Bigfoot community, I'm sure, it's, it, whatever, you know, you name the cause, and, and uh, there's a, a civil war going on. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's where we're at with, with
1: 9-11. Yeah, and it's, it's frustrating because, you know, like what I said, I mean, we saw it begin, and you almost think, like, you look back at the JFK assassination, and you think, well, you know, maybe this time we'll get it right. As far as like the conspiracy research community goes, like maybe this time, maybe this this will be the one we actually get that, that works. But it, it but, but it didn't. It kind of uh, it was it was really ground up by by the media in a lot of ways. It's surprising. I mean, you you do see some sort of coverage of it, but it's it's really an interesting way the media covers it in a lot of ways. They they definitely dismiss anybody who talks about it or dares to talk about anything beyond the mainstream story as as a total like kook. Uh, or they quickly dismiss the whole idea.
2: Yeah, it's become the um, – it's, it's kissing the third rail. Uh, whether you're a politician I, – I, and I, I noted with interest the other night that, that Ron Paul has finally come out and started talking about you know foreknowledge of the event and, and whether it, it was in part an inside job. Uh, now, Ron Paul never talked about that when he was on the campaign trail, and I understand why again it's the third rail but now that he's no longer running for office he's got nothing to lose so you know he's starting to open up and, and, and acknowledge that uh it's um you know once if you're inside and you're trying to operate within the system you just you cannot you cannot go there you cannot go there once you're on the outside uh and you have you have a certain amount of freedom it's like a Let's say, for example, uh, climate change. Um, if you talk to tenured professors, uh, they will not stray from sort of the orthodox mindset about you know man-made or anthropogenic global warming. But if you talk to retired professors, recently retired professors even, they start to open up and they'll say, yeah, the data has been fudged, or this just you know it doesn't make any sense, and I never believed it did, but I was afraid to think. I was afraid to say so and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, it's almost like you, gotta, you have to divorce. You, you need to divorce uh, in order to uh, be able to talk about these things.
0: Yeah.
1: It's a challenge. It really is a challenge. Uh, it seems like we operate in two different worlds, not you and I, but the uh, the people who are chasing after these mysteries and then the, uh, the people that are responsible, I guess you could say, for uh, ed- educating and entertaining the general public, which is the, the general media. It's like we're we're in a a, a double uh <laughs> competing world, Although thankfully, it seems like the mainstream media people are turning more to alternative media, which is great, you know they're getting more and more people who uh well I mean like I, I kind of bagged on Alex Jones earlier, but I got to give him credit he's He's gone from just like some little regional radio host to an international name that people recognize
2: Yeah, people are voting with their feet uh they're not um, they're not getting the kind of information. Uh, you know, I sit and I watch the 6 o'clock news and it, I often scratch my head and say, who put that lineup together? Like, how many of those stories do I care about? You know, or I saw those same stories last week or every year, you know, on Labor Day they trot out the same, the same stories. Uh, they're not covering the, the stuff that I, that I'm interested in or that I care about. And, and obviously I'm not alone in that. People are voting with their feet and they're walking away from daily newspapers and, and, and magazines and, uh, uh, network news and, um, uh, yeah, they're, they're finding that information elsewhere. And that's, and that's one institution I'm not, I'm not sad to see crumble, you know. What's because that? The, the mainstream media? Well, the, the, yeah, the uh, mainstream, the fifth estate or the fourth estate or whatever you want to call it, they, they yeah. They've, yeah. they've, they've, uh, uh, they've, they've walked off the playing field. They just, they lay down and quit on us. Um, you know, I, I, me- I remember, um, was it May 2010 or May 2011 when uh, Osama bin Laden was supposedly found and, and killed. And, uh, you know, I think mean three or four year olds that were asking more intelligent questions about, you know, well, why, why can't we see pictures or, or where's, you know, where's the DNA and why did they bury him at sea so quickly and, all of this, and where were the reporters? Where were the journalists covering that story? Uh, I mean, I, I understand, you know, after nine eleven and, and uh, the war on terror, there's a certain amount of rally around the flag. We are, you know, first Americans or Canadians uh, sometimes, uh, and then journalists second. But uh, just not just a total absence of critical thinking uh, by and large when many of these. Incidents happen, mm. and I just get the feeling that many of these people that are supposedly journalists, uh, I wouldn't trust them to cover a house fire, let alone nine eleven or you know the war on terror or be embedded, uh, you know, in Syria or Iraq. Yeah, I just I, I don't I don't I don't trust that they're going to get the job done. They're that they're, they're, they're going to ask the, the questions that need to be asked.
1: Right, right. Especially the ones that are sort of, uh, you know, it, you say embedded with the in the uh, in the conflict, but the ones especially like you know who are embedded in there, in their role wherever they are, the Washington Post or the New York Times or something like that. You know, it's like you said, they're not going to risk their kids' college education or something like that. They've they, they reach a point where it's like they don't. It's the opposite of tenure. It's like they they they're at an age where they can't get they can't risk being fired. So that's right. That's right.
2: Don't rock the boat. Don't rock the boat. And, you know, I often think that if Woodward and Bernstein were covering um, Watergate today, and I mean, my Lord, Watergate is, compared to what's going on now, uh, if Watergate happened today, it, it wouldn't even, it might get uh, passing, <laughs> you know, a coverage maybe 24 hours, uh, but certainly the president wouldn't resign. Uh, but if... It was a big deal, and Woodward and Bernstein were trying to uncover it today. They they would be subjected to the same kind of snide remarks from their colleagues that those people that are trying to investigate nine eleven or what have you hmm. uh, are being you know treated that way today. Woodward and Bernstein would be laughed out of the room. I'm convinced of that.
1: Oh, absolutely, especially because it's one of those like the truth is stranger than fiction type stories. Right. Right. Where it's like right. no one would even. They'd be like, get out of here, dude. That's you know. That's that go on go on <laughs> go on but all of America to talk about that stuff. That's crazy talk.
2: Right. Some uh, uh now a reporter would go up to he get an he get a uh an interview with the president. The president would say, "Well, this is just ridiculous and I deny it." And then the reporter would go back uh, and he'd report, "Well, the president has denied it, and that's good enough for me."
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, it was uh, it was Doctor Jose Arguelles who we were talking about with the moon calendar. So
2: yes, yeah, he sort of t- totally popularized the uh, the idea of the Mayan calendar and yeah. a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: What could cause that? Clearly, aliens can cause that. As happened in Roswell, New Mexico, as happens in the television show I like called The Event. You have to face facts that aliens are all around us, and they have finally gotten to the NHL. You're listening to Benal of America Audio creepy that's what this is you pointed out that i've spent a lot of time in Dallas 20 years working just a few blocks away from the grassy knoll oh, the book depository so and the conspiracy and the conspiracy museum which right. oddly enough has been closed down now conspiracy could be something odd is going on here oh well, i mentioned to you before we started the show uh, that you I was i was i've been intrigued and uh, not in a titillated way folks but i've been intrigued by <laughs> and no pun intended by the uh, By the news of the last couple days, this, this, uh, this wave of celebrity nude pictures that got, that, uh, got leaked to the internet. Hundreds of celebrity nude pictures that, the more I read about it, the more chilling and creepy it gets, because they talk about how it's part of some kind of, uh, they think it's part of some kind of, like, underground hacker, uh, celebrity nude trading wing, uh, trading ring, excuse me. There's a, lot, there's a lot going on in that scenario. An underground hacker celebrity nude trading ring, which is just super, super creepy. Um, but I was saying to Richard before the show started, it makes me even more nervous because I, I kind of warned about this on the Year in Review show, this Manti Teo story last year. I feel like we're being herded into uh, some kind of some kind of controlled internet situation, some kind of situation where uh, the internet's going to be much more regulated and, and people are going to just uh, blindly accept it because they've been conditioned to get ready for it over the last few years. So, uh, you know, I know you said when we were talking about earlier, you're not a techie. I'm not either, but, I mean, what, what do you think about all that that might be going on?
2: Well, a couple things. I'm not sure what's creepier, the fact that someone's actually hacking into the cloud and publishing these photos or that, these celebrities feel it's necessary to have these photos taken and then uploaded to the cloud. Uh, You know, what happened to um, a little bit of discretion and um, um, modesty? (laughs) I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm a throwback to the, maybe I should have been born in the 30s or something, but um, not that that, you know, excuses what what, what happened. Uh, But we're making things awfully easy for the, the National Security Agency, um, you know, we, we I, 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 I'm not a Facebook user. It's not that I have an, a, an aversion politically to it. I just, I, I, for me, it doesn't, it's not useful. It's not user friendly. Uh, but I don't understand the need that people have uh, when they eat a sandwich to take a picture, a selfie of them eating a sandwich and posting it, <laughs> or when they get drunk at a party, taking a selfie of themselves getting drunk at a party. Uh, I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm wired differently. My mind just doesn't go there. That that this is. I'm thinking people want to know this stuff, but obviously there are legions that do. But all of the stuff, uh, intimate details of, of our private lives that you know was once only shared in a whisper across the, a dimly lit dining room table, is now um, out there for for everyone to examine. So you know why are we Part of me thinks so hung up about uh, the NSA tapping our phones and our emails. We're giving them all this stuff willingly. Yeah. That's disturbing for me. That's the takeaway that I have.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, people that, – that raises a whole other issue, and you kind of touched on it with people taking pictures of their food and stuff. And I, I've been sort of beating this drum for a while. It's, it's frightening just the – you know, you go to a bar, you get a beer, you look around. It's like if there's ten people at the bar – Six or seven of them are on their phones. They're just in. They're in their. They're in the in the in the matrix, man. They've they've tapped out. <laughs> it's yes. scary. It's really scary because you wonder wh- what the hell the future's going to look like because people are going to just be really. They can't they can't deal with other people anymore in, in a face to face way. It's frightening.
2: No, and and the follow up from that is there is we are there, our sense of selves, our identity uh, is being scrubbed away. I think Marshall McLuhan had something to say about how technology scrubs away identity Um, and lost along with that is a sense of self and privacy. Like If you don't have you know, if there's there's no more there's not a concept of I or me uh, we're just all these Borgs uh, then there's no there's no need for privacy and I don't know uh, whether you would call it evolution or i inclined to call it devolution but but um, People of a certain age that are, that are raised in the digital age almost constitute another species uh I think they're they're they and I'm not saying this in a in a pejorative way necessarily, but I am concerned uh, they're they're they they're wired differently, and i can't finding it harder and harder and I'm only fifty i'm harding, finding it harder to relate to say people that are maybe thirty five and under. Uh, when you try to have a conversation with some of them about you know why we need to be concerned about our privacy uh and and in some cases, they just don't get it, they don't understand the concern because they 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 really don't have a concept I think of privacy,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: and they make terribly dumb mistakes it's you know it's like these celebrities, but also you were saying it's people. You can't imagine the number of times the police catch people doing the taking pictures while they're committing crimes or something like that. It happens all, all the time. All it's, it's like the stupidity of people is, is amazing.
2: Yeah, it, it reminds me of the, um, you know, when uh, you would you voice an objection to uh, being patted down at an airport, let's say, for example. You know, this is a violation of my civil rights, um, and we've talked about this on, on talk shows and, and Invariably people would call in and they would say something that irks me to no end. It was, well, if you've got nothing to hide, why are you worried about it?
1: Oh, that old argument. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And we all have something to hide. Every one of And we have a right to hide it. Now it could be an incredibly banal thing, but my lord. Uh, I mean, take that, extend that logic. Uh, Okay, does that mean that you would subject yourself to a cavity search? Because you've got nothing to hide.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's. I don't know. Yeah, I don't understand why people make that argument, but it's... I heard a good, uh... You know, we... People need to... I heard a good quote from somebody the other day. We were talking about the, uh... I don't want to get too deep into this Ferguson thing, but it was like someone was saying, you know, there are some someone was reporting on the scene down there and the other people were like sort of arguing with them and it was like just you know in situations like this take the side of the person being pepper sprayed you know we'll figure out who was right and wrong after it's over but you know the person maybe shouldn't be being pepper sprayed let's let's figure it out
2: like let's
1: let's all calm down let's let's not be pepper spraying each other
2: <laughs> uh, yeah you know the um, there's so many different aspects of that story too but just the the uh, militarization of local police forces. Uh, you know, whatever happened to Michael Brown? Or, you know, the reasons, and I can't foresee a good reason why you would shoot an unarmed individual. Uh, but just the issue alone of the militarization of, of, of the local police to me is, uh, it's, I mean, that's just front burner right now for me. It's we, that has to be dealt with. Absolutely.
1: Well, it's troubling. Is it is it, is it that cuz I I lived in England for like 5 months and I know how it's it, it's like uh sometimes it's kind of militarized in official capacity, but then the, the local police they don't carry guns or anything like that. But what's it like up in Canada? Is it is it is uh cuz around here it's like people really are kind of creeped out by the cops. You don't really want to you know, it's not like the old friendly policeman situation. This is really like <laughs> at least for me at least. You know, down here people are just kind of like you just you just want to stay away from the cops. Just don't don't run a follow of the police. Uh, but what's it like up there? Are people a little more trusting, or are they kind of coming to that same mindset?
2: Well, again, there is I think a little more respect and trusting in in the authority, and and um, I think by and large we have pretty good police officers that get into it for the right reasons. But there, there it only takes a couple of bad seats. Uh, you know, you you may remember the the G20 summit we had up in Toronto a few years back, and there were some. Egregious violations of civil rights, and and uh, uh, and there's more to come. I mean, the, the lawsuits are, are flying now.
0: Oh wow! But
2: uh, thankfully, I guess uh, we, we don't have um, we don't have the military hardware, um, you know, at the disposal of the, the local police. I mean, you know. We, we just don't have that uh, that kind of stuff lying around that we, that our armed forces can afford to give it away to the local police.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
2: they just, they, they don't have access to that. They're still using, you know, uh, standard police-issued service revolvers. Uh, and in some cases, you know, if they're dealing with, with cigarette smugglers and so forth, they, they, they find themselves outgunned. Um, but uh, stuff like G20 bothers me. I, I remember... Um, you know, there's nothing more dangerous than, than um, uh, you know, someone with a with a weapon that's just not that bright. And I remember a silver, Sarah Silverman um, had a line uh, of a comedian, and she was stopped by a police officer. I guess she was speeding, and the cops saddled up to, the, to her car and uh, asked her for her driver's license and registration. And then he looked in and he said, do you know why I'm here, ma'am? To which she responded you got a C average in high school?
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, that's
1: great. D- you touched on something that I never thought I'd ask about, but uh, it rung a bell for me. You mentioned uh, cigarette smuggling. I remember the old uh, pro wrestler Dino Bravo was mixed up in that, and they think that's why he was murdered. But And it always confused me, because I'd never really heard of uh, cigarette smuggling going on, but but so when it happened, you know, when he was murdered for being involved in cigarette smuggling, I was like, "What? what is that all about? And then, you know, that happened like 15 years ago, so it kind of uh, escaped my brain every now and again. It would cross my mind, but you just mentioned it. So what what is this cigarette smuggling? Is this a big problem up there?
2: Uh, in certain communities, uh, on certain border towns, um, and um, I, I want to be careful, I don't want to um, you know, cast aspersions on our, our uh, Aboriginal Canadian friends, uh, but there is a there is a small portion of the uh, the population that engages in this this trade, this cross border smuggling of cigarettes, um, and um, you know they're making a killing. I mean, they're making a, they're making a lot of money, and and actually, in some instances, a lot of that money goes back into the community. So you know, I'm kind of torn. Um, in the Aboriginal community they they they, they believe that the, the tobacco is a sacred plant and it is given to them by their creator and and they should not be prevented from from doing this but um, you know unfortunately we have uh, we have custom agents and and uh, and, and laws and regulations so uh, we have these sort of this clash of the two cultures and uh, it, it can get quite um, quite violent at times and there's a lot at stake you know uh, uh, for the Aboriginal communities, as I say, it can be millions of dollars, uh, some of which gets filtered into legitimate projects, you know, housing and community centers and and, and so forth. Uh, but it's a problem for the local police because um, they are in some instances simply not welcome on the reserves, or it's it's kind of a a, a jurisdictional kind of a conflict.
1: Weird. Now, how does that even work? They're making, are they making, like, off-brand cigarettes up there and then sending them down here? Or what, how does, what, what is that all about? I'm still confused, like, just, just about smuggling up cigarettes.
2: Yeah, I guess, well, they're, just, they're smuggling them across, like, um, ostensibly, from the U.S. into Canada not ah. paying, and not paying duty or anything on them. Oh, okay, so
1: they're coming from America. Uh, oh, they must be, like, really expensive up there or something, then, maybe
2: yeah like like everywhere else i guess but yeah. um and, and I don't know if the traffic is both ways or not um but um that's sort of the that's sort of a uh, that in in a nutshell, that's what's going on weird uh, so yeah, and then they're just obviously offering them a discounted price and in in certain circumstances, some of these cigarettes they may have been they may have been stolen, hmm, yeah.
1: There's all, probably all kinds of nefarious stuff going on there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, we had a caller from the 585 area code, uh, and then they dropped. So if you if you want to call back in, uh, Rochester area caller, feel free to uh, dial us up again. Uh, now, tell me a little bit about the TV show, the conspiracy show on TV. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of the topics you guys cover on that.
2: Yeah, we're just nicely into season three. And um, uh, let's see, last night's was uh, the Obama birth certificate. Ah, um, we we'd actually started making this episode a couple of years ago, so that's why it may seem like we're a little bit late to the dance. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's always a, a hot topic. And uh, we did an episode on the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and whether James Earl Ray was uh, framed. Uh, I interviewed William Francis Pepper, who was oh yeah James, James's attorney and also the attorney for Sirhan Sirhan. Um, uh, we haven't. We have an episode. It hasn't aired yet uh, in season three. It's on um, Stanley Myers' water engine. Oh wow! Whether it's, whether it's possible to uh, to create an internal combustion engine that runs essentially on what they call hydroxy, which is sort of a a different state of of hydrogen. It's not just hydrogen gas, but it's the electrons are spun in a particular fashion so that it actually constitutes another state, not a gas. Uh, and that was Stanley Meyer's claim, that he was able to somehow, um, you know, using some pulsed wave, electronic pulsed wave, he was able to spin the electrons in the, in the hydrogen atom in a certain way. And he, he made these YouTube videos where he was seen driving his his dune buggy across America on virtually nothing but water. And then he died under rather mysterious circumstances, which led some to speculate that it was big oil, of course, after him. Yeah, We did an episode on that. John Lennon, uh, whether Mark David Chapman was a Manchurian candidate. Uh, We we did an episode on the fake, well, we called it the fake Arab Spring.
0: Hmm. The idea
2: that these so-called spontaneous populist uprisings in places like Morocco and Libya and... uh, uh, Egypt were anything but spontaneous and populist; that they were uh, manufactured by outside forces, whether it was, you know, NGOs from America or NATO intelligence uh, that that uh, instigated these clashes in order to institute uh, or bring about a regime change in these countries and install right. or create a client state,
1: basically. Yeah, destabilize the whole region. Right, right. Um, Interesting. Right. Now, How do you decide on what topics to cover? Let's, we'll get meta on this a little bit. You know, what, what how, take us into sort of the uh, the you know the uh, the war room, if you will, of, of putting <laughs> it
2: together. <laughs> yeah, I wish it was uh, had a greater a better story to tell you. I just I sit down at the beginning of the season and um, I, I look back. Okay, what have we covered so far? What haven't we covered? What's happening right now that has some currency? Uh, and I and I I want to make sure that you know it's not it, that it's kind of balanced. If I'm doing 13 episodes, let's say I want to have a certain number of of geopolitical content. Whether it's Air, the Arab Spring, I want to have some real uh, you know hard conspiracy type stuff. I think like Stanley Myers or Martin Luther King Jr. 9/11 stuff. I want to. I also want to. I want to service a, a wide audience, so I want to include some UFO stuff. Uh, some paranormal stuff if possible. Yeah. And, uh, we'll go out and we'll shoot maybe, um, you know, probably twice as many episodes as we need. We go into a city and, and try to maximize, because this is a Canadian production, to keep in mind, so, uh, we don't have a lot of money to throw around. Uh, we try to maximize efficiency, so if I go into a place like New York, um, I might work on five or six episodes simultaneously, uh, because I know that those people are in New York, right? Right. So I may end up working on some episodes that aren't that don't even get aired in that particular season. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that, yeah, that's pretty much how it happens. It's it's um, it's real kind of guerrilla television in the sense that we're f- you know very low budget, flying by the seat of our pants. And um, I mean, I'm, pr- I'm proud of the show, um, the resources that we have. Um, you know, it's been a long, arduous journey, but here we are, season three, and as I say, we're now in the U.S., parts of Europe, and Africa. Wow, nice, nice.
1: Yeah, Adam Go Rightly says uh, he, he was filmed for the show, so I'm not sure. Uh, what, whatever. What that is. Uh,
2: a couple of years ago, I met Adam in a travel lodge in Inglewood, California, stone's throw from the airport, and <laughs> we did it in my hotel room. <laughs> the show, I mean. <laughs> Uh, let's see. We we talked about uh, Jim Morrison. That episode is airing uh, this season. We talked about John Lennon. That's airing this season. Oh wow! And I think we did one more. Uh, it'll probably come to me after about three o'clock in the morning. I I think we did three three episodes yeah. with Adam, uh, and then and then after that I I went down to um, Coronado, just off the coast of San Diego, and I met. Um, Alan Graham and I interviewed Alan, who was Jim Morrison's brother-in-law.
0: For the oh wow,
1: that sounds pretty cool. Now, did I see on your on on the list there? You also did an Oak Island episode. I had the I had the opportunity to go out there and check it out. It's pretty. Uh, it's it's quite the story. I really it's really enchanting. Uh, the whole tale. That's
2: our that's my uh, my Canadian content. <laughs> I <wanted> to, <laughs> season I wanted to include uh, sort of a uniquely Canadian uh, story in Oak Island is um, arguably the lar- you know the most expensive and the longest running treasure hunt in in history.
0: Mm. Uh
2: they call it the money pit. And uh it's just a little tiny island, a collection of oak trees in Mahone Bay off the coast of Nova Scotia. And there are dozens of islands. Now what what makes it interesting and, and sort of feeds into the, the skeptics of the debunkers is that there are formations in that area, just given the topography or the geography, that, that gives rise to a lot of sinkholes, and has led some to believe, oh, it's nothing but a sinkhole. But I, I don't buy that. Um, I mean, if you look at the way this thing was constructed, and, you know, dating back to the, the, uh, the late 18th century, when, I, when a couple of kids, um, you know, saw this, what looked like, um, you know, some sort of uh, uh, an engineered pit that had been, that had been dug and they dug down a few meters and they, they ran into some, some timber, uh, and then got the timber out of there and dug down some more and then they found some more timber. I mean, timber that had been cut. Yeah. Uh, uh and, uh, um, uh, you know, rampant speculation what's down there. Uh, at, at one point a stone, engraved stone apparently was found which has been lost to the ages, but the stone was supposedly Trans, trans, translated, uh, and it said something to the effect um, 500 feet below lies, I don't know, uh, four tons of gold or something like that. So, um, um, the speculation is that it was pirate plunder, uh, or it was the Knights Templars uh, plunder, Yeah. Uh, the Visigoths. Uh, some have even speculated it's the final resting place of the Holy Grail and the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the the transcripts of uh, the original transcripts of, uh, from the real William Shakespeare, not William Shakespeare, but the person who actually wrote those plays. So it's a great story. Um, it's got all the you know it ticks all the boxes. There's yeah, intrigue, yeah. there's mystery, there's there's controversy. Uh, and I spoke to a woman, Lee Lamb, who actually lived on the island with her family back in the late fifties, early sixties. Oh wow. Uh, her father and, and brother uh were were hired to try and uh, excavate and, and dig down and find the treasure and in fact, her father and brother ended up uh, dying as a result fell into a pit mm. and were were overcome by toxic fumes so it's kind of a sad story but uh remarkable remarkable tale i'm uh, I'm really pleased with that episode
1: Did you get the chance to go out onto the island at all i know they're i think it's only open like I think it was closed for a while uh, since the, since I went up there and then now they're kind of reopening it again a little bit but I don't know if you have the chance to actually get out there
2: no I tried uh, it's I mean, it's privately owned
1: yeah they're uh, really on
2: lockdown like otherwise yeah. yeah you you need it's almost like uh, you know you need a special visa to get on there you've got to you gotta um, you know write months in advance and ask permission and so forth yeah um, and I, I think at, as we speak, I think there's another group, another firm that's been hired to try and excavate. The problem is it's been, it's been messed around with so often that, um, you know, a lot of those original sort of tunnels that were designed kind of a, as a booby trap, so that as you dug down so far, you would allow this, the seawater from these inlets, these carefully dug inlets would, would flood the shaft with water so you could never get down to the bottom. But there's been so many excavations, uh, you know. People would would bring massive equipment and hose and things on there. I think they've damaged the original structure. So I don't know that they'll ever be able to recover what may may, may lie at the bottom. But to answer your question, no, I didn't. I, I wasn't able to get on the island.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think
1: they I think they open like now. I think they're open like three weekends a year in the summertime. I know when I went up, it was like one weekend a year. Uh, but it's very—it's funny. Uh, we talk about the UFO community and the conspiracy community. Even that community is beset with with infighting and civil wars and strife. So, so you know, it's, for, go ahead. It's a,
2: yeah, it's amazing. Is it? I guess that's just part of who you know being human. That when we um, we sort of organize around a particular issue, it's just a matter of time. Be- you know, before uh, these factions sort of break off and start fighting each other.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, it, uh, I heard the idea proposed when I was up there. That was 2007 when I was visiting there. A couple of kids from, I think, MIT gave a presentation. They suggested, I don't know, some kind of new technique. Actually, they were going to use it at Fukushima. I don't know if they did or not, but it was like they put a ring around the money pit uh, of, like, long uh, poles, long pipes, with, right. and then they freeze freeze the they fill them with water and like freeze it essentially create a giant ice cube and then pull the whole thing out but i don't know if they ever i, I pres- obviously they never did it but i think that might be the, the most intriguing possible way to get
2: to the literally get to the bottom of the money pit my gosh uh, i can't imagine how an endeavor how much an endeavor like that would cost <laughs> yeah yeah
0: well i don't, I don't know. know
1: maybe i could pull it off if i just had all the pipes <laughs> so,
0: what well, a good luck to you! Too. Yeah,
1: shove them in the ground. But yeah, so I don't know if uh, did you ever see the TV show they made about it? They 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 have a, like a they have like a reality show. I have mixed feelings about it because I love Oak Island. I really right. it's one of my favorite stories, but it's it really wasn't the kind of story that was crying out for a reality show.
2: No, uh, yeah, to me that's like um, I don't know um, uh, putting an amusement park in Daly Plaza. Right. Just, yeah some things exactly. are' just best left alone and and we can revel in the uh in the legend you know hmm exactly I wouldn't be that said,
1: I wouldn't be adverse, because I, I they have a very gorgeous resort out there right next to Oak Island, so I wouldn't be adverse to them just building a resort on the island if they're going to give up on digging for it, so who knows but it, it, I have a feeling it it's ironic, but we you talk about empires rising and falling earlier this there's the oak island sort of vampire but eventually i think the people who have it will eventually get sick of it and kind of give it up and it'll fall into someone else's hands and it'll continue onward that way you know with a different ownership group
2: oh no doubt no doubt in fact uh there was a rumor several years ago well not several maybe more like a, a 10 years ago that martha stewart attempted to buy the island now i don't know that you know she had um, you know uh in mind that she was going to recover the treasure. I just think that she wanted some nice, uh, relatively inexpensive oceanfront property. Um, but uh, I'd heard that legend or that rumor. And and it's true. I mean, Atlantic Canada, you know, try to buy a nice acre on Martha's Vineyard. You, you, you can't do it. But uh, there's there's tons of ocean uh, oceanfront property still to be had at reasonable prices in places like Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island.
1: Yes, I have family on Prince Edward Island. So I've yeah, let
2: the out of the bag, and now all these um, uh, American real estate um, speculators will be rushing off and buying my country.
1: <laughs> well, I I don't know. Have you ever heard this whole thing? I, I don't know. Uh, as I said, I have family up in Prince Edward Island, so uh, when my when my immediate family would go up there and visit – my My family up there were very upset because they claimed that the Americans were stealing all of the water from Canada. Is there something going on where, where Americans are importing the water from Canada or something? Um,
2: well, we had that the north American free trade agreement um, and uh that was always kind of a contentious uh issue uh politically up here mm-hmm. this this happened uh when was i think it the the final agreement was signed in in 1988 and um whether or not water was part of that agreement that we would that we would uh make available some of our water um and it's sort of you know denied by the, the it was denied by brian mulroney the prime minister at the time as i recall that no fresh water wasn't on the table and we're not giving our water away but that doesn't preclude you know other uh um, other sort of side deals from happening apart from the no- North American Free Trade Act, but um, you know, I don't know. I, I, we we have more fresh water up here than anywhere else in the world, and um, you know, I, we, as far as I know, we we're not suffering any of the. <laughs> drugs you are in the northwest. Uh, it's just been horrible. Uh, you know why wouldn't why wouldn't we make some of that water available to our American friends?
1: Well, it's funny. Uh, the guy Red Son Superman who. Just uh, he just got into the chat room. He he missed the first hour of the show. He he wants me to ask you why half of Toronto is under construction this summer. So <laughs> I, I guess it, I guess it, guess it is the uh, the prevailing theory on all that. Interesting. Um, now one thing I've always kind of been interested in, as far as uh, Canada goes, is like with America, it seems like they just take over everything as far as space goes. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, there's still some unsettled parts of America, but people are just everywhere. But when you look at Canada, there's a huge portion that just kind of keeps growing upwards. Uh, what's up there? You know, what, you know what,
2: what's going on up there? What's going on? Well, yeah, it's true. I mean, our population—we've we've got about 35 million souls here in Canada. Um, and, and here's the secret: why Canada will never be annexed by the United States. Um because the last thing for example a republican uh, president would want would be thirty five registered democrat thirty five million registered democrats <laughs> <laughs> uh suddenly uh you know brought into the united states hold um uh, i am not a registered or would not be a registered democrat by the way but um um but our population about ninety percent of it or more is just strung along the canadian u s border like this ribbon that just you know goes from coast to coast and once you get uh, let's say two, three hundred miles north of there. Um, I mean, it's virtually uninhabited. Uh, it's, you know, just as far as the eye can see, boreal forest and, and, um, Canadian shield. And then ultimately, of course, uh, when you get past the, the tree line and into the permafrost, it's just, uh, um, a lot of ice and snow. Yeah. Do you think of- it, it, we... We really do need to to uh, to develop our, our northern uh, frontier um, you know we have um, I think we're very generous uh, to uh, to our immigrants to come to this country and and uh, you know if I always say for people who are willing to come here and and work and contribute uh, then the more the merrier we've got all kinds of room um, but I wish we would there would be more of a concerted effort to try and encourage uh, newcomers to this country from wherever they come to settle in the northern regions. Uh, and, and um, you know, we really start... We need to start exploiting some of the, the resources up there that are untapped. Uh, we cannot sustain... You can't sustain a country as large as this. Um, you cannot build infrastructure, you know, from coast to coast with, a, with such a small tax base. Hmm. 35 million people. I mean, we're a small such a small number of people in such a vast, uninhabited land.
1: Yeah, it's remarkable, because, you know, like I was saying, uh, a big part of it, the expansion of the population in America, is just uh, the, as you said, exploitation. People want, you know, they found that gold in California, next thing you know, it was just this mad rush to get out there. It's surprising there hasn't been sort of this just mad rush to get up in there and into that area, even though I'm sure it's treacherous, but you know, it's 2014, I'm surprised, just just the sheer sort of like the human condition of trying to get blood from a stone, trying to get, you know, especially the the business end of things, the economic end, I'm surprised we haven't seen this, this mad rush just to get up there and be the first to find whatever, you know, could possibly be exploited and utilized by, by big business.
2: Right, I mean, I, I, and I'm sure there are, you know, countless environmentalists out there who would be listening to what I'm saying and you know, would want to Hit me upside the head with a, a sock filled with horse manure, uh, saying, "No, leave our pristine forests alone, and so forth." But um, uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm one that believes that the, the Earth was was given to, to man, uh, you know, to, to use, not to abuse, but to use and um, and to manage. We should be good stewards of the Earth, certainly. But uh, you know, for the for the for the good of for all of us, for the good of all of us, we need to be able to to exploit you know, the, the resources and, and, uh, and what's there. But it is many, you know, it's very, inho- it can be inhospitable once you get up there, you know, the black flies and the the, uh, the cold and so forth. It's, these are not easy working conditions hmm. by any stretch.
1: Well, it stands to reason, uh, it seems like Canada has a very healthy Bigfoot culture, so it stands to reason maybe that there's a lot of creatures and stuff hanging around up there we don't know about either.
2: Yeah, I, uh, I did a show uh, on my radio program a couple of weeks ago just about Bigfoot sightings in Ontario and um, just about three and a half uh, hours north of here is Algonquin Park. It's this beautiful uh, provincial park uh, and I think there have been about 200 Bigfoot sightings in that park alone uh, and um, some pretty credible sightings too. So, yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, if there's... if if uh, there's any uh, any place for, where Bigfoot would be um, would be found, I would think it would be you know these vast stretches of, of boreal forest that are virtually uninhabited. I mean, you could you could sustain a pretty healthy breeding population up there for sure.
1: Now, just uh, to get meta again on the whole thing, do you think that the whole thing, being the paranormal and everything, uh, like I said, uh, we've both been looking at this for for a very very long time, and I've I apologize, too, in a sense, because I'm a very cynical person. You probably you may have picked this up by now. I'm very sort of like, ah, geez, with this whole thing in a lot of ways. I find it frustrating, but also very interesting that all these mysteries are out there. And as far as I can recall, being in this field, like I, haven't re- I don't remember any ever like being solved. It's really remarkable in a way, you know. You can go back to like the '70s and '80s mysteries that are still still floating around, you know, like Amelia Earhart and crop circles and catamulations. You don't hear much about any more, but they're still mysteries, and they still haven't been solved. So it makes you wonder what's really going on with this paranormal thing. Why can't we? Why can't we close the deal on any
2: of these? Well, uh, you know, when we're talking about paranormal or supernatural, um, you know, someone the other day sent me an email with a quote from uh, a scientist talking about how you know there are there within the 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 uh, the light spectrum you know there there are wavelengths that we cannot perceive with with the optical nerve and there are uh, you know acoustical waves that we can't perceive um, with the ocular nerve so you know what's to say that there aren't these subtle energies out there that are that are just as every bit as real as ultraviolet or uh, you know whatever frequency you wanted to talk about that's beyond human perception uh, just because we can't perceive doesn't make it any less real and, and if we're not necessarily looking for it and and therefore sort of uh, um, attenuating an instrument I suppose to, to, to sort of record that or to pick it up we're never going to find it if we're not if we're not necessarily looking for it so I'm, I'm a, a, a great believer in the unseen world. For that very reason, I just uh, just because we can't measure it yet, because right. we don't have an instrument capable, doesn't mean it's not every bit as real as what we can see and hear and feel and touch.
0: mm. mm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You've touched on yeah. You touched on something that I've kind of thought about too and talked about on the show. It's like we you wonder if as as a species, if we're even capable of being able to grasp these mysteries. You know, it's like uh, I'm colorblind. Some 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 colors I just can't see right. So it's like you wonder if, just as a species, if we're just paranormal blind.
2: That's an excellent analogy. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it, but as to you know, uh, as to uh, Bigfoot, you know, habeas corpus. You know, where yeah, where is the body? One would would suspect, after all this time, we'd have we'd have some some prima facie evidence. Um, other than just these a series of countless blurry photographs, or but as as Mitch Hedberg once pointed out, maybe maybe Bigfoot is blurry. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. I've
0: said yeah, uh, I'm you know, just as
2: cynical as you, Tim. I'm just as cynical as you. But we ha- but there's a difference. You see, we're 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 skeptical, we're cynical, but we're not debunkers. Right, a debunker is just uh, someone who, even in the face of of um, evidence of, you know, credible evidence, just shuts down. It's um, it's almost. A, I think it's a kind of a survival mechanism, um, and we all have a little bit of that in us. But they they just they're they're not even they're not skeptical. You know, the skeptical inquirer. There's a few members of the skeptical inquiry group that are skeptics, like Joe Nickel, but by and large they're just the bunkers. Yeah. Right, right. I'm
1: cynical. I'm cynical, but I'm on the team of. I'm on the, on our side. You know what I mean? It's like I'm cynical because I want things to be done better. I'm cynical because I want I want this thing to come to a resolution. Some of these mysteries. So.
2: Yeah, you're. You're. It sounds to me like it's not so much cynicism as frustration.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
2: Yeah, uh, I share that. I share that.
1: Well, what do you make of this? See, it's funny, too, because I, I, I find a fascination with the, with the 9-11 story because it was born and, and evolved and everything. And so this year we also saw uh, the birth of this new mystery, who knows when it will be solved, this MH370, the missing plane thing. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that whole thing? Because I found it really, really interesting.
2: Uh, yeah, I've got all kinds of thoughts on that. and I've, I've done a number of programs uh, on, on uh, Malaysian Airlines 370, uh, i first of all uh, i found it very interesting that um, there's a group of islands just north of Diego Garcia uh, which is kind of um well I, I believe at one time it was a british protectorate this island in the in the south indian ocean uh and then all the um british uh residents were kicked off and now it's kind of a joint u s and um a british air force base uh very tightly guarded and very secretive, um, and there's a group of islands just north of the Diego Garcia, and the name, again, escapes me, but the, the, uh, the day that uh, 370 disappeared, uh, there, were, there was about a dozen uh, farmers located on different areas of the island uh, who all swore and corroborated each other's stories uh, that they saw. Uh, a very large aircraft, which sort of fit the description of a, a, a 777, flying at low altitude overhead in, you know, uh, flying essentially, uh, in a westerly direction, which is the exact opposite, uh, uh place we're told it went down. And, um and then Diego Garcia
0: claims that
2: on that very day, their, now get this, they claim their radar was shut down for maintenance. <laughs> Uh, now, you know I've talked to a num- uh, enough military people over the years to know that you know an installation like Diego Garcia would never, in a million years, uh, leave itself so vulnerable uh, as to you know shut down its its radar system for the entire day. That just does not happen. Yeah. Uh, so you know why did Diego Garcia say that, and what did those islanders actually see flying in a westerly direction? So. Uh, there 's a lot of misdirection happening with three seventy um, I think the best explanation i 've heard and one I, I think has a great deal of credence is uh, that three seventy was taken up to about forty thousand uh, feet and we know it did that, and people were scratching their heads as to why at forty thousand feet the um, the um, the plane would basically um, um, now my ignorance with aeronautics, aeronautics is coming out here. Decompress is that the term you would use? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, the de- oxygen de- would like to. Depressurize.
2: Like it would depressurize, right? So at that altitude, it would depress the cabin. Would depressurize. The oxygen masks would come down, and after about fifteen, twenty, twenty-five minutes, everyone would just sort of drift off asleep and and would asphyxiate die. Uh, and then this plane is flown west, and people were saying, well. It couldn't have landed on the ground, you know, where you need a lot of runway to land a 777. Well, if you go onto Google Earth and you look at places like uh, Yemen or, or Somalia and Somaliland, uh, and Somalia is basically governless at this point. It's, uh, it's, it's just completely lawless, that place. There's nobody in charge. And there are uh, dozens of abandoned, very long runways, airstrips uh, in Somalia, uh, it's it's not too hard to, to contemplate that 777 could have been rerouted and flown to a place like Somalia, landed, the dead passengers taken off, uh, to be used perhaps by by some future I don't know black ops or some terrorist organization. You could you could I mean the the payload capacity on the 777 is staggering combined with its its um, long distance flight capability. Uh, you could fly just about anywhere in the er- in the world. Uh, you could you could you could put some dirty nuclear material on that plane, fly it over New York, dump it, make uh, make New York inhospitable or inhabitable, uninhabitable rather for a hundred thousand years. Yeah. Uh, totally paralyze you know the the U.S. economy. Uh, you could put a small nuclear device on there, detonate it uh, somewhere over the United States in the upper atmosphere and and uh, cause an EMP. That's my thinking. It was commandeered for use as in some future project, shall we say?
0: Mm. I
1: I definitely think something nefarious is going on with it, and I think uh, part of me—I was uh, really—I think that I think there's some kind of connection here with the with the other Malaysian plane that got shot down. I feel like because I introduced the idea—I'm sure I didn't introduce the idea, you know, to the world—but I introduced it on my show in discussion that maybe the original uh, first plane that went missing was some kind of message from the United States to Russia because that's when all that upheaval in, uh, in I think, I forget now the capital, uh, the Ukraine there, all the yep, upheaval. Yep, yep. Uh, I, I felt like maybe, I was I sort of threw it out there. Maybe this is a message by the U.S. government while, while Russia was taking over part of Ukraine that, uh, you know, hey, look what we can do, guys. We can make a plane disappear. So just chill out. And then next thing you know, like six months later, another Malaysian airline goes down, courtesy of Russia, and it was like, maybe their their response back where it was like, you know, hey man, let's, let's look what we can do. Like, I feel like there's got to be some kind of... I find it too coincidental that there was two Malaysian airlines that that were involved in these major world events in one year. I feel like maybe there's some underlying message or tit-for-tat going on that, that we're not privy to. Uh,
2: and actually, if you just look at the 777 alone, uh, uh, less lesson than... I think it was only a, a couple of weeks after 370 disappeared, there was a 777 that was um, uh, intercepted. It was flying towards Copenhagen. Uh, there was an um, some sort of a summit with a lot of, uh, I think it was kind of an anti-nukes uh, organization, which included President Obama and a, a number of other Western leaders, were meeting in Copenhagen. Uh, and this 777 was flying into uh, restricted airspace and had to be, um, as I say, had to be intercepted and, and escorted out of there. Oh, weird. And
0: I've never heard that. I can't,
2: I, I can't remember if that was a Malaysian airline, but it was definitely a, a 777, and when I heard that, my ears pricked up, and I thought, aha, is that the project they had in mind?
0: Uh, but luckily,
2: nothing uh, nothing um, happened. But the thing with the um, the Malaysian airliner that went down in, in Ukraine, and I'm not convinced yet that the, uh, the Russians were responsible uh, for that... Hmm. Um, not that I, you know, I think Putin is, is an angel or anything, but I think the idea of portraying him as another Hitler is just, is patently absurd. Um, imagine, you know, how would the Americans respond if the Russians decided to put nuclear missiles? And that's what this is about. NATO wants nukes in Ukraine. Uh, and, and, you know, n- nobody could abide that. You know, if you're president of Russia or, or president of the United States, you, you can't allow, uh... I'm going to put nukes in your backyard. And how would the Americans respond if, if Russia tried to put nukes in Cuba? Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I've seen that movie. <laughs> yeah. I remember how that one ended. So, um, but there's, yeah, there's definitely something going on. The, I think George Nori interviewed somebody um, who may have been um, in, in touch with some Russian military people and, and someone on the ground who, ex- who, who saw the bodies and he commented that, uh, and these are the, uh, the passengers aboard the airline that went down in, in, in uh, Ukraine, commented that the bodies looked like they had been dead for a very long time.
1: Mm, I remember hearing and, that,
2: yeah. And I thought, wait a minute. Is it possible that the passengers from 370 were somehow, I don't know, kept on ice? They, and then they used that same plane, flew it over the Ukraine, shot it down to use as some sort of a pretext, uh for war I don't know but yeah. then I thought wait a second if they're willing to kill all of those passengers the first time they're not going to bother keeping the bodies they they'd they have no no problem shooting another plane down and killing more innocent people
1: hmm. right and then it, if i saw the arguments that that maybe that plane that got that crashed or got shot down was uh was the first plane but then you still suck with another missing plane cuz then you're like well, what will <laughs> happen to the second plane
0: <laughs> Exactly.
2: Exactly, and yeah, and those passengers. Right. Yeah, it's there's a you know there's a in some respects I think we World War Three has already begun and it's been going on actually for many many years. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, but it's all being I mean wars are fought very differently now. We fight we fight wars by attacking other com- countries' stock markets and trying and, and uh, you know uh, destroy their economy or or uh, currency wars and so forth. Um, and then sometimes the fighting spills out onto the main stage, uh, and we catch kind of a glimpse of it, but we don't understand that it's it's an actual, it's, a, it's a war. We we think it's 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 simply some air disaster or it's an earthquake or it's oh that you know poor Princess Diana was killed in a in a car accident because of a drunken chauffeur. Right. Uh, but are these actual acts of war? that just sort of spill out onto the main stage.
1: That's an intriguing idea. That is very intriguing. Because I think you're right. There's a lot of stuff that happens uh, that they, they wouldn't want us to know that, uh, that that was going on. You know, like there was a huge blackout, I think, like uh, after 9-11. I forget, uh, in New York or something like that. Who know? I mean, I do not really find out what the story was all it was. But seems it like, seems like the news, immediately, they immediately want to be like, it's not terrorism, don't worry. So it's, then you have to be like, all right, dude, what what's really going on here?
2: Yeah, it's there's a great deal of uh, stage managing uh, going on, and uh, backstage. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, we're we're sitting out front in the front row watching the show and just totally oblivious to what's going on back there in many respects.
1: Yeah, we're we're left fumbling, trying to figure out what you know, trying to put the pieces together as things happen now. We're near the end of the program. I just want to take a couple of minutes here, and much to the chagrin of the listeners, give me a little update here on your Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, what happened? I thought they were I thought they were in the mix there for a while, and, and they've really fallen off uh,
2: the last oh, uh, few weeks. I had, I had great promise too, but uh, you know, early on, of course, uh, even Tampa Bay and and Houston probably were thinking World Series, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's the old injury bug. We we lost um, we lost Encarnacion, um, who was our big run producer. I mean, there were there were weeks when he was carrying the team on his back. He went down for a prolonged period of time. Uh, a pitching staff that once again looked amazing on paper turned out to be uh, pretty mediocre. Um, and then also the injury bug there. We lost Brandon Morrow. Oh, he just got. Uh, um, He's back on the, uh, on the roster after being on the DL for most of the season. And, and he was supposed to be you know, a pretty solid number two or three starter. R.A. Dickey has once again been, been incredibly mediocre.
0: Hmm.
2: Um, so, yeah, there, there, there goes the season. Uh, Encarnacion, Batista was injured for quite a while. Uh, Brett Lurie, a pretty talented infielder, plays some second base and some third base and has a pretty good bat. Um, he's, he's lost for the season. So, um, not enough pitching depth, and um, when you're relying on the long ball, I mean, you know, this is not the 83 Orioles. Uh, you know, we don't, have, we don't have those kind of guys that can, that can um, just, you know, hit them over the fence night after night after night. That, it's streaky, right? You, can, hmm. you need good defense and pitching, and we didn't have it.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, uh, you know, as a Boston fan, I can't say I'm pulling for them, but I do feel bad for them because so, everyone else has gotten to the dance here uh, in the last few years, even even Baltimore broke through. Look at Baltimore; they're on fire this year. So, even Baltimore is going to make it back to the playoffs this year. And Toronto is still kind of still kind of knocking on the door here, and uh, it's, it's becoming quite a long drought here for them
2: to get into playoffs. It's been yeah, it's been 20 years at least since we played a meaningful game uh, past the All Star break. But this year, I, you know, I think we sort of turned a corner this year. We 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 were still competitive into. Uh, into mid to late off, uh, mid to late July, um, and um, here we are, end of uh, early September, and we're still not mathematically out of it. So that's something, I guess. I take some solace in that. But we've got a, a pretty good, uh, pretty good farm system and a lot of talent, and and um, I think a pretty a pretty savvy GM. So hopefully he can. He kind of was stand pat this past year. Hopefully he'll make some some deals and. We can turn this thing around.
1: Yeah. As we say in Boston,
2: there's always next year. (laughs) And then the year after that, and then, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm growing old. I'm growing old. I want to see one more before we go.
1: Well, it, it, it seems like every year there's a team that uh, that bubbles up to the surface again. So this year it's Kansas City, and like I said, Baltimore's sort of back in the mix again. So it's 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 cyclical. So hopefully we'll see we'll see what happens. I'll, I'll have a lot more to say to you uh, say to talk to you about with uh, about baseball when we get you on the baseball show next spring. So
2: well, Tim, you've had plenty of reason to celebrate the last uh, decade or so with the Red Sox. So I mean, it's been a feast. Absolutely, a feast.
1: yeah. Well, it's been it's been a ups and downs. You know, we're, we're in the cellar again this year. We were in the cellar a couple of years ago, and we won last year. It's it's a very uh, schizophrenic uh, period for people. So they're already – but but we're already looking forward to next year. So we picked up some really good uh, talent in the last few weeks. Uh, I'll, I'll be interested to see how things shape up next year with these these two Cuban guys and uh, or whether they flip them for that guy from the Marlins. There's a lot of uh, people really seem to think that they're going to try and make a run of that guy, so we'll see. Well, I'm on
2: a mission to take my boys to all 30 ballparks in the major leagues, and uh, I was just down in New York, took them to Yankee Stadium. Uh, next on the list is Detroit, and, um, you know, there'll be a trip to Chicago, whip off a couple of there, Saint Louis, or, uh, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Minnesota, Milwaukee, all in the neighborhood, so. Nice. Uh, nice. Yeah, that's, that's my game plan anyway.
1: That sounds awesome. Well, let me know when you make it to uh, Fenway. I'd be happy to host you guys here at the place. That's a date. You got it, my friend. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever been to a? You ever been to a game at Fenway?
2: I have not. Oh, you uh, I'm sure. Oh, I mean, it's a shrine. It's you know, there's Wrigley, there's there's Fenway, and that's about it. That that's all that's left standing. I mean, the the new Yankee Stadium is wonderful, uh, by the way. But oh, uh, sure. None of the history, of course, of uh, of Fenway or um, or Wrigley. So.
1: Well, we're in the final minute here, and uh, if, we, if we run over a little bit on the plugs, that's fine, because the thing will keep going. Tell me, uh, folks can check out more at richardsurett.com. That's pretty simple, Richard, and you spell Soret S-Y-R-E-T-T dot com. It's the Conspiracy Show. It's Sunday nights, 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on AM 740 and a whole bunch of affiliates. And it's also, you can stream it, right, through richardsurett.com, so people can check it out there as well. Uh,
2: it's it's a live stream, and then there's the podcast as well, and uh, then the TV show. Is the website for that is Show dot com. And as I say, fifty two episodes now available in the U S. So they should be playing uh, from you know many parts of the country. Not we haven't covered we haven't blanketed the U S. Yet, but we're getting there. Nice, nice. And folks, just check it out. This
1: stuff's awesome, and I really uh, I got to thank you, Richard. First of uh, all, we're going to lose the audience in a moment, so. First, let me thank the live audience for tuning in and the folks in the chat room. Thanks for the heads up on various technical mishaps. Thanks for tuning in, my friends. And they are off now. I just want to thank you once again, Richard. Uh, I really do appreciate it. Loved the conversation. Uh, you're, you're of the like mind with me. You know, you really cover all these different mysteries. They're all so fascinating. And, and to be a specialist on one thing, you miss out on so much other fun stuff. So uh, I really uh, appreciate that you're kind of in the same camp that I am, where it's like, what's this, uh, with Jim Morrison, do you think his death? Is there, you know, are there alien tests going on at the Dulce base? What's this latest conspiracy theory surrounding MH370? It's, you know, the whole, the whole milieu is fascinating, and I really enjoy talking to folks who can cover all the different stuff. So I really uh, can't thank you enough for coming on the show, and I really look forward to uh, reconnecting and, and doing it again in the future.
2: Oh, my absolute pleasure, Tim, and uh, it's, it's always great working with you on Coast to Coast, and hopefully we'll uh, do more of that in the future.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, my friend. So have a great evening. I'm going to throw the plugs in here. You're free to go, and uh, I will talk to you soon. All the best.
2: Thank you, Tim. Thank, Thank you. Bye.
1: And with that said, let me do the plugs, folks. This is, of course, banalofamerica.com. That's not really banalofamerica.com. It's Audio. And you can find out more from us at benallofamerica.com. Pretty simple, b-i-n-n-a-l-l-of-america.com. You can find out more about us also on Facebook. Just punch in Benal of America. If you enjoyed this program and you want to help us out and help keep the show rolling, you can make a donation to PayPal or via our PO box. The address is at Benal of America. As I say when we ask for donations all the time, all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. I cannot plug the next edition of BOA Audio because I'm not certain about the guest. We're working on sort of settling in on one guest, and hopefully that'll Come together in the next couple of days, and if not, we got a couple of other folks lined up for future episodes. There's only four shows left here in Season 8, and I want to make sure that each program is a home-run edition of the show. So be patient, my friends. You're not going to be waiting a month between shows, but you may be waiting a couple of weeks as I bring the very best guests to you as we close out Season 8. I do want to apologize for missing so much time. I don't know what happened. It's just the way it is here in August. Things get crazy. It has been the craziest summer I've had in quite some time. Just a tremendous amount of work and travel and things that I never would have expected coming up for me here this summer. But it's all behind me now. I've got my eye on the final four guests. Hopefully I can lock them all in to wrap up the season I got an email from someone asking if I was okay, and I also got a message on Facebook from someone who was concerned that BOA Audio was over. Do not even worry, my friends. BOA Audio is not going to go out with a whimper. It's going to go out with a bang, and it's not going to be going out anytime soon. We have big plans for this program. We have big plans for the Banal of America franchise. I'm just incredibly lazy during the month of August. It seems to be an annual thing. I, I beat myself up last summer about it, but this summer I kind of looked around and said, well, this is par for the course. This is the way things go here with Banal of America. And hopefully the hardcore BOA Audio listeners have been very patient and uh, can uh, withstand the weight. And they seem to time and time again. And I really do appreciate your support, folks. You guys are awesome. As I say all the time, you are the fuel that drives the BOA mothership. Thank you so much for your enduring support of BOA Audio. Until next time, this is Tim Biddle, thanking you for listening and signing off.